Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we want to invite you to read along with us. But And you can use one of the Bibles that are located in the seat in front of you. Uh, there is a uh, there's a Bible there. And if you don't have a Bible, please, by all means, feel free to take that with you. You can take it home and, and um, that's just our gift to you. Uh, we're going to be in those Bibles, in the church Bibles, we're going to be on page 558 this morning. And so for the rest of you, we're going to begin... In verse 23, and especially if you're a part, regular part of Northridge Life Church, we're going to read a very, very familiar passage of Scripture. This is what we read. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper and saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world Thus says God's word, you may be seated. Praise the Lord. Well, two weeks ago, we began a two-part series entitled The Ordinances of Christ. And we learned that an ordinance, sometimes in some churches called a sacrament, is a rite or a ceremony instituted specifically by Christ that unveils a mystery for the church. It kind of explains spiritual mysteries in a way that we can better grasp and understand them. St. Augustine in the third century said that a sacrament, or in our case an ordinance, is a visible sign of an invisible grace. We began by talking two weeks ago about the initiatory rite of believer's baptism. It's initiatory uh, in the sense that it's Christ's only authorized method for a person to show or to demonstrate that they have been crucified with Christ, that they've been raised with him to walk in newness of life, thus being saved from all of God's righteous wrath and even the eternal damnation of hell. They've been saved from that. And baptism in and of itself, as we mentioned, does not save you. It's not an act that in and of itself brings you salvation. But someone unwilling, now I want you to get this. We talked a little bit about this in more detail a couple weeks ago. You can listen to that on the website. But someone who's unwilling to obey Jesus in baptize, in baptism rather, has no sure footing on which to lay claim to salvation because they're not even obeying Christ in the simplest commandment. Amen? Therefore, baptism is a necessary prerequisite to membership in the church. 
So today we're going to move on to the second recognized sacrament or ordinance. Today we're going to discuss the Lord's Supper, which we have prepared here. Sometimes we call it communion. Some of you might have been part of congregations in the past where this ordinance is referred to as the Eucharist, which is just from a Greek word that means to thank, or even some called it the Mass. In some cases where those terms are used, however, there is significant disagreement as to how this ordinance is performed and what it accomplishes, etc. So we're, for our discussion this morning, we're going to use the terms communion and the Lord's Supper. But as we discussed last time with the word sacrament versus ordinance, whether you choose one or the other, we shouldn't get too hung up on the words that people use to describe this or define this supper either. So we're not going to get too hung up on that, but we're going to use Lord's Supper or communion. So in this passage that we read just now at the beginning from 1 Corinthians, uh, you know, which we read, as I said, almost every time we take communion together, Paul gives the most complete doctrine, the most complete instruction found in the entire New Testament. He gives it to the Corinthian church about the Lord's Supper. He's telling them how it should be done. And this text we just read tells us many things about this celebration. And this is what it tells us. First of all, it tells us that the church has been receiving and and recognizing and celebrating communion since its very beginning. In fact, since the night uh, that Jesus was betrayed when he instituted it. Paul said, this is what I received directly from the Lord. And he was telling how the church how to celebrate it. And for now, for 20 plus millennia, the, 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 uh, I'm mean, sorry, for 20 plus century, not millennia, for 20 plus centuries, um, the church has been, has been, uh, recognizing this. And so the first thing we learn is, it, is Christ instituted, it shouldn't, it's not new and it should never be changed. It shouldn't be tampered or altered with. The, there are other things that must be considered in order to receive it meaningfully. That's the second thing we learned, that this is not just a willy-nilly, you know, you hear sometime about some youth group that wants to be hip and cool, and so they use, you know, grape crush and Doritos in the, in the Lord's Supper, and, and this is something that, that should be taken according to some guideline in order to be meaningful. And because, see, the third thing we learn is because of the sacredness of this rite, notice, you probably did notice that Paul gives severe warnings to those who would take it flippantly. That this is not something that we should approach just half-heartedly. Paul says, in fact, these are his words, not mine, that anyone who drinks, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that's why, listen to how serious he is about this. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. By actually profaning The supper of the Lord, they have been weak, they've been ill, and they've actually died. The Lord's Supper, so this is my point, the Lord's Supper should always be observed with a dual sense. Two things happening here. It should be a dual sense of both great rejoicing and careful sobriety. All the time. Great rejoicing, careful sobriety. It should be done with a glad heart, and yet one that is simultaneously very serious and somber. I imagine, in order to describe this kind of paradox between those two extremes, I imagine something similar to the state of mind of most people at their wedding. Think about your wedding day. You're overcome with gladness that the day has finally arrived. And yet, 
you're extremely serious. You're extremely somber and in awe of the magnitude of the vows that you're about to take. You see, you see the similarity there? There's joy. There's sobriety. Therefore, the Lord's Supper, while we're on the subject of, of marriage, the Lord's Supper is reserved only for those who are wearing Jesus's wedding ring. Right. Hear me? It's reserved for those only wearing Jesus's wedding ring. Now, obviously, if you're new to Christianity or not a believer yet, I'm not talking about a physical ring. I got this from Ginger, not Jesus. And, and I'm talking about someone whose heart has been given to Jesus and only Jesus. It's not some conscious, easing, religious performance. It's not something you do to impress God or to make yourself right with him by merely checking a religious duty off of your scorecard. On the contrary, it, it, it's to be approached. This, this table, when you come, is to be approached as a deeply tender candlelight dinner, an anniversary dinner between Christ and those who can say, Christ is my beloved and I am his. That's how the table should be approached. And so for this very reason, Paul says, examine yourself. He says, judge yourself. Just as you would not walk into a restaurant, barge over to an anniversary dinner between a man and his wife, pull up a chair, you you wouldn't do that. You have to realize that if you haven't put on Christ, if you have not made Christ yours, if you have not placed all of your trust in Christ, completely surrendering to Him and His Lordship at this table, you are an intruder. Harsh, but true. You have no business at this table until you've settled the issue of who is Lord. Who do you belong to? Who belongs to you? More on that in a minute. So what is this ordinance all about anyway? I want to spend the rest of this morning, I want to list for you six things that the Lord's Lord's Supper should remind us of every time we gather together. First, the Lord's table serves as a perpetual reminder, that means unending reminder, of Christ dying on the cross for our sakes and also as a pledge of His undying love for us. In Luke's account of the Last Supper where Christ ordained communion, He records these words from the mouth of Christ right after he'd broken the bread and passed the cup and and explained to his disciples that they represented his soon-to-be broken body and his soon-to-be spilled blood. He gives these words. He says, do this in remembrance of me. It should seem impossible. It should seem impossible to those of us who gather here to worship every Sunday that we should even be able to forget such an important reality as Christ's suffering. But how often, how often, if we're honest, if I'm honest, how often are we truly found just thinking about, meditating on, and being impacted by, changed by, transformed by His sacrifice on the cross? How often? How often are we distracted by every other thing? And as Pastor David told us in the open, lesser gods. How often does remembering his sacrifice result? And I'm not talking about Sunday morning. I'm talking about Sunday, Monday through Saturday. How often does remembering his sacrifice result in us in waves of praise? Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my heroes, said this. He said, we are so dull... And stupid. He was a very direct man. 
We are so dull and stupid as the result of sin that we might forget even this, the death of the Son of God for us and His agony and His shame and all that He endured on the cross and His eternal love for us that we would even forget that. So the Lord Himself ordained and commanded that we should meet together and break bread and drink wine. This do in remembrance of me. But much more than that, see, a trip to the communion table doesn't only remind us of Christ's suffering, it reminds us not only of what he did on our behalf, but the love that was at the root of such an act. If Christ commands us to keep coming back to the table, it can only forget this wonderful thing, that he never, ever, ever wants us to forget the tremendous, awe-inspiring love that prompted this in the first place. He wants us to go, Wow, like, like John did in 1 John chapter 3 when he says, look at this, look at the love of God that's been poured out on us that you and I should be called the sons and the daughters of God. That's what this is all about. So that's the first thing. Second thing, communion serves as a bond of our union with Christ and with each other as members of his mystical body. 1 Corinthians ten sixteen. The chapter previous to the one we read, Pastor David read this scripture to us last week. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not, now get this word, a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The word that Paul uses here for participation is the Greek word for fellowship. That Greek word is, many of you know it, is koinonia. And and the, this, this idea of fellowship is actually translated in the old King James Version as communion. Interesting, isn't it? Communion literally means, the definition is sharing together, sharing commonly or in union with one another. Paul is stating here that by consuming the bread and drinking of the cup, we are literally fellowshipping with Christ. Now let the magnitude of that Sink in for just a minute. Don't be dead to what I just said. That by coming and consuming, you are literally entering into fellowship with Christ. He means that we are mysteriously through this, this practice aligned with his cause that we share in his sufferings as well as the benefits of his death and resurrection. We're actually sharing Christ together when we do this. But it's important to remember that we're sharing Christ together. That's the point. One of the great blights on the Western church is the way that we have reflected the individuality that has just become like cancer in, a, in the, the Western world, it's a, a, in the culture. It, we overemphasize me at the expense of us. And God takes this moment, this moment around the table, to reemphasize us that we are one, that we are together, that we are not only sharing Christ, but we collectively become or have become the body of Christ together as one. In the New Testament, we're told to love one another, to serve one another, to weep and rejoice with each other. But today, instead of expecting people to be incorporated into Christ's body as part of something larger than themselves, We're only allowed to ask them if they've made Jesus their what? Their personal Lord and Savior. See the difference? Do you see the difference? 
The difference between being part of his mystical body, his mystical worldwide body, Pastor David said this morning, that all over the world people were gathering just like we did and worshiping God. They're going to be gathering around the table of the Lord just like we are in a minute. And, and we are part of something so much bigger and yet we've reflected the individuality. What's in it for me? We go to church and we start holding up scorecards to make sure that they're, they're kind of scratching our itch and meeting our needs. And, and instead of saying, how can I be a part? How can I be fused into this body and be a part of what God has called it to do? 1 Corinthians ten seventeen. the following verse says this. It says, because there is one bread, we who are many are what? One body. We all partake, for we all partake of the one bread. One of the marvelous mysteries unveiled in communion, however, is not just that we're participating in and fellowshipping and communing with Jesus, but that by doing so, we are literally becoming one with another. That's amazing to me. That See, what that does is that raises my esteem of you a whole lot. It raises my esteem of you because I realize that my life as the philosopher said uh, falsely, my life is, is not an island. It's not a rock. It's not, I'm not all alone. I, I, I'm part of you and you're a part of me. The Bible says when one weeps, the other weeps. When the other, one rejoices, the other rejoices. Why? Because we're one living organism to the glory of God. And that's why. And that's what we're representing here. This is one of the key reasons why, as I started to say earlier, that people who have not yet settled issues of surrender and lordship have no place at this table until they do. This is why we discourage you also from bringing your children to the table until they've clearly articulated what it means to trust Christ. To come without belief or to allow your unregenerate children to come indicates a total lack of understanding of what it means to be part of one body through the brokenness of Christ. The most beautiful illustration of of, uh, communion is in a moment I'll take this piece of bread, this single piece of bread, and I'll break it. It it symbolizes Christ's body and and, and we'll distribute it. And, And the idea is that Christ, who was broken in his physical body, makes us one as his mystical body. It's an amazing miracle. An amazing miracle. Moving on. Third, the Lord's Supper is a seal of His promises to us and a renewal of our obedience to Him simultaneously. The promise was that when Jesus did this first around that last supper table, the promise was that His body would be broken for you. He didn't just say, my body's going to be broken. A lot of people's bodies are broken. But he said, he took that bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body and it's broken for you. And so Peter reminds us of a promise from the prophecies of, of Isaiah to give us the real impact of what he's saying there. Listen to the promises in this short passage from 1 Peter 2.24. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body. On that tree. Now stop there and pause. Meditate. Don't rush past that. So this brokenness of his body is symbolic to you that in his body, in his body, every bit of wickedness, every bit of brokenness, every bit of dysfunctionality, every bit of, of sorrow and shame, every bit of it was placed on, its, on his body before it was broken for you. Every single bit of it. 
And so there's a promise when we see and we consume of his, the element that represents his broken body, there's this promise that guess what? I'm not carrying my sin anymore. I'm not carrying my shame anymore. I've been delivered from the chains of my dysfunctionality. The heritage of whatever family I grew up in is broken because he bore it all on his body on that tree. And that is the good news. That's the good news of communion. He says, he bore his, our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Folks, that's a promise. I am not enslaved to sin anymore. Why? Because he was just a nice guy and said, I forgive you. No, he bought my forgiveness by the brokenness of his body. By his wounds, you have been healed. That wasn't all though. Said this is my blood spilled out for you. He said that his blood would usher in a new covenant for those he calls to be his own. Now watch this. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, great, great book. It explains for us how that the Jewish system worked versus what Christ did. And he says this in chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, every priest stands daily at his service, doing what he's called to do, offering repeatedly, focus on that word repeatedly, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Listen, this next phrase is critical, which can never take away sins. But, that's a big old, big old, big old but. (laughs) But, when Christ had offered two things here, for all time, that means it ain't going to happen again, a single sacrifice for sins. All time, single sacrifice. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, guess what he did? He sat down at the right hand of God. Why? Because he's reigning in authority because there's nothing left for him to do to save you. He is done. And that's, that's our promise. That's what we're, we're celebrating in communion. So as we make our way to the table, we remember these promises. Forever sealed, we joyfully obey His command to, commend you, con, to, to continue rather gathering in remembrance of those great and precious promises. And when you come, you can let the bread and cup remind you that because of Christ, you're dead to sin, you're alive to righteousness. By His, broken, by his brokenness, you've been healed spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically. You can be reminded that Christ offers one perfect sacrifice that forever frees you from the need to perform or produce completely free i don't got to perform for anybody i don't have to produce anything because now jesus has taken the rain carrie underwood would be happy because jesus took the wheel completely He's taking me where he wants me to go he's guiding me into all of his righteousness through the holy spirit he's doing it performing and producing are over Fourth, communion reminds us of the blessed assurance of his presence with us who are gathered in his name. One of the perversions of Roman Catholic teaching is that when you consume the bread and wine, that it magically becomes the literal body and blood. I'm talking about cells and blood, and it literally becomes the body and blood of Christ in taking it. Lutherans believe something similar, although it's slightly different. 
But during the corrective days of the Roman of the Protestant Reformation, rather, when when they were looking at the the, the Bible versus what they've been taught in the churches, and and they said, you know, they were calling foul and throwing penalty flags. There was this. Uh, Swiss theologian in the 1500s named Uldrich Zwingli, and, and he, he was desiring to correct this overreach about communion, about this idea that it literally becomes the body and blood of Jesus when you consume it. And he began to teach that the power of communion was entirely symbolic. It, it doesn't really mean anything. It's just bread and wine to remind us. It's symbolic. It's more memorial, and it's only made effective by faith. But John Calvin um, he, he thought that was a little too far on the other end of the spectrum. So he taught a middle ground approach to communion. It, while rejecting the position that the Catholics and the, uh, and the Lutherans, that Christ was literally physically present in the elements, he taught that by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is made to be spiritually present within them. That Christ literally is present with us at communion by an action of the Holy Spirit. He's made to be spiritually present within them. So when the church celebrates communion, the Holy Spirit unites heaven and earth. And thus the, the church soars up to heaven to be with Christ. And Christ descends to the church by the Spirit's power. I like that. I like that a lot. I like the thought that when we gather, that Christ is literally present here with us. Am I alone? I love that. No matter which position you take, though, the point is that by faith, by miracle, or by both, Jesus Christ is present at this table when we come. And that should give us both incredible comfort and extreme pause for reflection. Amen? Fifth, the Lord's Supper is an opportunity for those of us who love Him as the Savior to feed on Him spiritually, who is the bread of life. John chapter 6 Jesus raises quite a ruckus with the Jews. He had a tendency to do that. He could kind of rattle their chains every once in a while. I don't know that he was trying to, but he was just you know, preaching the truth, and that didn't always go over real well with them. Just like it wouldn't have gone over well if he'd said it in 21st century Lubbock. Amen? But when he tells them, when, he, when he's talking to them, it, it bothers them a lot. He goes in and he tells them, Hey, guys, you know that man in the wilderness? No, no, no. I'm the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. He symbolized the, the manna, or rather he should say the manna symbolized him, the manna that came from heaven and sustained the wandering children of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. But speaking with deep symbolic clarity about how he must be received, and get this, Jesus must be received. Jesus cannot just be agreed with. Jesus cannot just be joined you have to receive him. And this is what he says. And this really blew the tires off the Jews that were standing there that day. John six fifty three. he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, watch this, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me will also live because of me. 
You'll remember Jesus, before he started his ministry, was in the wilderness and the devil came and tempted him. And Jesus three times quoted Deuteronomy to the devil in the wilderness. And he told him in his first temptation, he's hungry, he's been fasting for 40 days. And the devil says, hey, see these rocks? Why don't you turn them into bread? You're the son of God. You can do it. Why don't you turn those to bread? Then you won't have to be hungry. And he says this word from, from Deuteronomy. He says, man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. What, what did John... Now, here's, here's part two of our trivia question. What did John call Jesus in John chapter 1? You remember? The Word. He said, in the beginning was the Word, meaning Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, watch. Who is the Word? Man does not live by bread alone, but what does he live by? He lives by the Word. He lives not by consuming that which fails, that which passes away, that which grows moldy and old. He, he lives, man lives by consuming the word, the true bread that comes down from heaven for the feeding of the world. The logos. So I ask you this morning, are, are you living by bread? Are you living by what your hands can produce, what, you're, what you can go out and get? Or are you living by Christ? Are you living by the word? Are you living by submission to him? The Lord's Supper is an opportunity to come with people that love Christ and feast on his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, his promises, his joy, his discipline, his direction, his word, his life, his death, his, his, his resurrection and his reign. Come to the table. Come to this table and feast on all of that this morning. Come to this table and don't leave hungry. Don't leave hungry. Don't come for bread and juice. Listen to what John also said in verse 1. He said, from the fullness of his grace, from the fullness, uh, or from his fullness rather, we have all received grace upon grace. So Christ has got plenty for all of you this morning. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And we will put thanksgiving to shame this morning. You can come and just feast on his grace and you don't have to leave empty at all. You can come and be absolutely filled by the grace of the Lord Jesus. Anybody hungry this morning? I am. I'm ready to come to the table. But before we do, I said I'd give you six things, so I'm going to give you one more. This is a good one. The communion table is a pledge that our Savior is coming again. It's a pledge. If you look around you, you see the insanity going on in Washington, people threatening each other with nuclear missiles. You see all the crazy stuff going on in the Middle East. You see you know, you know, all kinds of sexual sin and different things going on. Let me tell you something. If you hadn't heard this lately, you need to know this. It ain't always going to be like this. Help me out here, folks. It's not always going to be like this. The Bible says that a declaration will be made in the last day that they will proclaim the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ. He is going to wring this earth out of all its wickedness, all its evil, and He is coming again he will establish himself as king over this earth 
forever and ever and ever and ever and righteousness will reign and sin will be no more. I don't know about you, but I really want to mark that date on my calendar. If only I knew when it was going to be. I want to be there. I want to be there. Don't you want to be there? Can your eyes, the eyes of your faith, just wait to see that happen? Jesus said in Luke, he said, I will not eat it again, or I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he said, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now watch this. This is really cool. He didn't say, I will not drink it again. He didn't say, I won't drink it again, as though his death would end his ability to enjoy a banquet with his friends. But rather, he said this. He said, I will not drink it until. I will not drink it until the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is finally, irrevocably established, and we pop a cork and celebrate. He says, that's when I'm going to drink it again. Revelation 19.9, beautiful verse. One single verse in the book of Revelation. so beautiful. It says, and the angel said to me, this is John speaking. He's writing all these incredible visions that God has given. He says, the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Hey, have you got your invitation? Have you got your invitation? Are you going to be there with me? Are you going to be there with Jesus when he finally says, it's time, and he breaks the bread, and he pops the cork? Isn't that going to be great? Isn't that going to be great to see that he himself, in heaven, we're going to literally feed on him. He is going to show us in realities that we can't even understand now that he is the bread of life. He is He is the living water. He is the, the, the sweet blood that, that cleanses us. Paul tells us, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Not if he comes, but until he comes. He's coming. Better get ready. He's coming. So as you come to the table today, think about this. You may have never thought about this, but here's here's what I want you to do. I want you to say in your heart to the Lord, today, Lord... I'm remembering you with a piece of bread dipped in juice. But tomorrow, ah, tomorrow. Tomorrow I'm going to be seated at your table, Lord, robed in white, having cast my crowns at your feet, hearing with my ears the unceasing eternal worship of angels, having looked upon you in your long robe and your golden sash around your chest, having seen the hairs of your head white, white like wool, like snow, having been pierced through by your eyes, which are like a flame of fire, and having worshipped at your feet, which are like burnished bronze and refined in a furnace, and having been thrilled by your voice, which is like the roar of many waters. Lord, I'm going to see you that day having the seven stars you hold in your right hand and the sharp two-edged sword that proceeds out of your mouth and having looked into your face, which is like the sun shining in full strength. 
And our bread that day will not just be bread and wine, but it'll be the leaves of the tree of life, which are for the healing of the nations. And the Bible tells us they're always in season. So let's come to the table today, remembering his death, fellowshipping with Christ, united with each other, obediently reveling in his promises, enjoying his real presence, feasting on his fullness, and anticipating his return. Ian, you with me? I'm going to ask the elders to come to the table. And if you would stand with me. done this before, but I want you to just take, say, 30 seconds. I want you to just consider what you've heard and maybe the way that you have come to the table before. And see, Paul, when he says, examine yourself, judge yourself, he is not making the issue that we should be morally perfect when we come here, because guess what? I'm not coming to the table if that's what he's saying. Hear me? I ain't coming. That's not what he's saying. He he puts the emphasis in that passage on discerning the body of Jesus Christ. So I've given you this morning six reasons to see the power of this ceremony, this rite, this sacrament, this ordinance, and, and, and to discern the body. Guess what? Look around you. Look around this room. Look around. That's the body. See him? See him? You're not just seeing the body when you look in the mirror. You look around you, you're seeing the body of Christ. The gathered, mystically unified body of Christ. And and if you must also come, you must discern. This is why it's not about moral perfection. You don't come, you don't stay away if you you aren't morally perfect. You, You come because this broken body, this spilled blood represents a body that was broken for who? For you. It's broken for you. The blood was spilled for you. And so you discern the body. You say, whoa, that's not just bread and juice. That represents my forgiveness, my freedom, my liberation from the bonds of the enemy. I'm free. By his stripes, I'm healed. Amen? Amen. Amen. Paul says this. We read it earlier. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the night that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me says, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. All right. The band's going to play, and we just invite you to come. If you need a moment to kind of reflect and, and prepare yourself, you're not in any hurry. we got time. So just take a moment, center yourself in Christ, not center yourself in your you. Don't, don't you do you this morning.
is center yourself in Jesus and remember what he has done that made this possible for you and then come and receive at at his table.